Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by Spalding University's Sina Jeter Naslund, Karen Mann Graduate School of Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Our good friend Richard Taylor is here on the podcast to talk about a new book. He's titled Fathers, and we'll define that in just a moment, uh, Richard, if you will. But let's first of all remind people of your remarkable career as a poet, as poet laureate, as a novelist, as a nonfiction writer, uh, as a professor, um, as a... uh, a man of all seasons. How about that? That's no, just ad libbed. You're very generous. Uh, did I leave out anything that you want to? I think you included much more than is justified. Uh, you are uh, a man of letters who uh, has contributed to the uh, literary landscape of Kentucky for a long time, and thank the good Lord you're still doing that. And uh, with uh, the, the publication by Accents Publishing of, uh, of Fathers, plural. And as someone has commented, and I think it might even be in the liner notes by one of your friends, that we also want to include mothers and uh, yeah. the, the, the good uh, women uh, folk yeah. who are in your life. But uh, let's ask the, um, the airplane question, uh, Richard, if you're on a an airplane uh, with uh, a lot of other authors, and one of them turns to you and says, uh, so you've written this new book uh, called Fathers. Uh, What's it about? And your response is? I would say that this is a book that seeks to answer the question, or the, the statement actually, that we are all the children of many fathers. And I think you reach a stage in your life when you become a little more reflective and perhaps look backward a bit, and uh, it occurred to me that my father has always been a mystery to me. And uh, brooding, not brooding, but musing over this for a length of time, and having written a little bit about him in the past, I decided to, to, to assemble some of the memories I had of him in order to in some way elucidate, at least for my own satisfaction, what he was and what he meant to me. Uh, I know I always had great regard for him, but I never fully understood him. And uh, the, uh, the best conclusion I could reach is that, like many of us, he led a double life. Uh, One, his working career as a trial lawyer, but secondly, his life close to his Kentucky roots, uh, growing up on a farm that his family had had farmed for five generations, and that uh, he kept a hand in that. He wasn't so much a farmer as he was a gardener, and in later life, vegetable garden, enormous vegetable garden, an orchard, and but flowers in his old age. And I like to think that we all move towards things that bloom as we grow older. 
But anyway, this was my attempt to assemble memory and to recreate some of the key moments in my interaction with him. And I can tell you that probably the, uh, the hardest moment was uh, after he had sent me to law school and uh, when I was not sure what I wanted to do, having to uh, face him and say, Dad, I think you should know I've been offered a job teaching. I had a master's degree at that time. And I had just, I'd finished my bar exam, completed my bar exam. I clerked in uh, his office for a couple of years. And I think the expectation was that if I wanted that, I had a, a job and uh, a career. My brother followed that same path. Uh, and I had to say to him, you know, I, this really isn't for me. And uh, I understood, as I say in the book, I'm not an adversarial person. Uh, most of the lawyers I knew, and fortunately he was a, an exception, the trial lawyers I knew were alcoholics and neurotics by 40, and uh, I did not want to follow that, that pace. I often thought, one of, my, one of my law school professors, a wonderful individual named Athel Taylor, no relation, Athel practiced in some small Kentucky town, it might have been Shepherdsville, and I can remember going down with my father to see him one day, and we went into his office, and they said, he was, my father was just filing some papers or something, he said, well, we'll go by and see Athel. We went by Athel's office, and his, his secretary said, you know, Athel's not in on Tuesdays, he likes to fish. And I got to thinking about the virtue of small-town law practices, especially in Kentucky, where things were much more personalized, much less adversarial in a kind of competitive, vicious sense, as I sensed in some ways, to some degree, they were in Louisville. And that, that's the kind of practice, had I had that opportunity, I'd, I'd probably have practiced in a small town, small practice, general practitioner. But you call your father a mystery. Yeah. Was he a mystery uh, when you were a young child growing up, or did he remain a mystery all during your adult life, too? He pretty much remained a mystery. We were... Uh, he was very good to his children. He was uh, regular in his habits. He was not a tremendously uh, effective uh, person. I mean, he didn't show much emotion. And didn't I think hug that you? Probably no, but he did. Didn't say, I love you, Richard? Very, I don't think he did that to any but, of his children. But fathers didn't do that, did yeah. they, in, no. in the era that we grew up in? That's right. But on the other hand, he, he had an image of what he thought I should, what he should provide for me. I was thinking about this the other day, and I didn't write about it, that uh, he wanted us, for example, to know about guns. And uh, I can remember when I was 14, I think he gave my brother and I each a, a pellet gun, and the idea was that there was some value in that. I think he wanted us both to be hunters, and neither of us was. 
Uh, he loved bird dogs. He had, I've still got his library of hunting books, uh, which was extensive. And so I think he realized that, that he and I were very different in many ways. And uh, as I mentioned in the book, my formative years were also shaped by an uncle who lived in, in the household who was completely different from my father. Not that he was so emotional. It's that his interest, because he had had very little opportunity for an education, were intellectual. And he was uh, sort of an autodidact. He read. He had artistic skills, which my father lacked. And I think I mentioned in the book that uh, when I left the law, my father did not put up any resistance because he himself had selected the law by default. Mm. And he had wanted to be a landscape architect. And ironically, uh, he found out he could not draw. I have a love of drawing, which I'm sure I inherited from my mother's side of the family, where two or three individuals were practicing artists. What kind of hound is this on the cover? It's a it's a an English pointer, and I can remember vividly when my brother and I accompanied my father to the Ninth and Broadway L and N station, and these two English pointers came to us from Canada. They were in a crate or crates, I guess, and they lived with. Uh, we could not keep them in the city. They lived in the country with, with my, my cousins, Cousin Lucy and Cousin Moni. And unfortunately, they, uh, they became more and more unmanageable. You know, dogs without a lot of supervision, particularly hunting dogs, will... They wanted to run. They wanted to run. And, uh, but, but that dog's name was Tick. Tick and Bo were the two dogs, and my father, as you can see in that photograph, loved those dogs, and he trained them. He, even years after he had stopped hunting, he, he, didn't, he didn't have time to hunt. He would have my brother and I enlisted as members of the Jefferson County Sportsman Club for one reason. Every year, the Jefferson County Sportsman Club had a what they called a quail release, and they would give you so many quail per member in a family. And he, we would religiously go out to pick up those quail at the quail release, and he would take them to some spot in probably around Jefferson County, somewhere rural Jefferson County, and he would release them. Though he realized, I'm sure, that he would not ever probably be hunting those quail again. Uh, so a lot of his life, I think, was looking back toward what he'd known and bridging another century. He came out of, he came out of a, rural, uh, a rural background. His father was a tobacco farmer. Uh, he uh, who, who ironically died as a result of tobacco, not from, you know, cancer. He had cancer of the jaw. He chewed tobacco. Mm, yeah. Um, but well, was your, um, 
There were happy moments. There were, oh, there yeah. were, there were delightful a, I moments. A, I had a wonderfully normal childhood. Well, tell us, uh, I think one of the most, uh, the more delightful parts of, of fathers, and by the way, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking to Richard Taylor, uh, uh, former Port Laureate, poet, uh, writer, uh, friend of Kentucky Humanities, and uh, uh, who's just published uh, Fathers. And Richard, um, you're growing up in, uh, in Louisville, in Crescent Hills, it is such a true depiction of uh, so many uh, neighborhoods, whether a small town or yeah. larger cities. Yeah. Uh, talk a, a little bit about your growing up. Well, uh, Crescent Hill was an idyllic neighborhood. Uh, my father had, when his, when his mother, when his father died and his mother moved to the city, she bought a house in Crescent Hill across the street from the house in which my mother was raised. And Crescent Hill, to me, during the 50s and even into the 60s, was a very normal place to grow up. Church, a library. Uh, very early, I was collecting comic books. I, I knew when comics were delivered to the two or three drugstores along Frankfurt Avenue. Uh, Swimming? Swimming, Boy Scouts, uh, good friends through elementary school and then uh, middle school at Barrett Junior High. I don't think I mentioned that in the book. And then Atherton High School. It was all very, very idyllic. Normal. It was idyllic. Yeah. And uh, I guess the, uh, the crash on normalcy for my generation came in the 60s. Uh, with Vietnam, the women's rights movement, uh, you name it. Civil and rights. Politi and political assassinations and the rest of it. I think America, to a large degree, lost whatever innocence we had retained during the 1960s. Uh, but this book is looking back, and mostly with a positive view, trying to understand uh, not only my father, but, but those who had an influence on me. My uncle, my best friend, David Orr, who was a really remarkable person. Well, talk about David, because you, you yeah. devote some, some yeah. um, uh, you've done this in the past, and, and you were uh, close friends uh, of, um, uh, for, a, for a period of time. He was quite um, the, uh, well, he was a philosopher. Uh, yeah. he, he was quite an intellect. Talk about yeah. him. Well, I was sort of his pale understudy. Uh, I'm not an intellect, I'm not a philosopher, uh, but David, more than any teacher I had in high school, directed me toward books. Now, I was already reading, and my uncle would have me write down, he was fascinated by language and had me learn words and keep word lists. But David really got me interested in reading. And uh, it was explained to me many years later that one of the reasons he was such an avid reader was that he was an insomniac and he would stay up and read much of the night. But he was also one of those rare individuals who can straddle what I call straddle the disciplines. I mean, he had a mathematical mind, a technical mind, he was interested in science as well as literature. He was particularly interested in, um, I think David 
uh, was very interested in rebellion. And uh, he had a rebellious, individualistic nature, which, as I explained in part of the piece on him, I think he inherited from his parents, who were free thinkers in the 1930s, had gone to the Spanish Civil War, for gosh sakes, out of Louisville, Kentucky, which is pretty remarkable. Mm -hmm. But David, uh, I, I didn't put this in the book, but I can remember David was reading Guy Davenport and Wendell Berry from an early age and, and communicating with both of them. Both of them, in fact, gave eulogies at his funeral. Uh, but David would, uh, David had told me when I was in graduate school that he wanted to, he had never been in a class with Guy Davenport. And, and I, we arranged a time for him to come up and I asked Professor Davenport if, if David would be welcome in his Ezra Pound seminar. And Guy Davenport, of course, said certainly. And, uh, and, and it, was just, it was just one of those moments when the two of them had a lot to talk about. I mean, David was, among other things, a student of the poetry of Ezra Pound. And, uh, and uh, he had this depth of learning, certainly beyond anything I could approach and beyond what most people knew. So, so you, you were um, kin in a way that... that that boys and girls are, are have best friends. Um, you were more of a best friend to him than he was to you, or was it? No, we were, we were close. Yeah. And from the time we were in the third or fourth grade, oh. uh, we had a brief stint together in the Cub Scouts. Mm -hmm. And uh, he did move, his parents moved at one point. So in middle school, he attended... Uh, uh, middle school, I think it was I.M. Bloom in the Highlands. And so we weren't reunited until we were both driving mm -hmm. and we were both in high school mm -hmm. at Atherton. And David was a true Atherton rebel. Mm -hmm. I want to tell you a funny story about David. This last weekend, I had the great pleasure of visiting uh, the Henry Faulkner exhibit yes. at, at uh, the Healy Museum. I can remember David, and this has been maybe early 70s, calling up one day from Louisville and saying, look, let's go up to the Healy Museum. They have an exhibition of Chinese porcelains that I want to see. <laughs> so he came up, picked me up, and we drove over. And as you might expect, I was pretty scruffy, and he looked pretty scruffy too. And someone officious met us at the, uh, the entrance, and, and they said uh, they welcomed us in a kind of halting way. And they said, uh, and what would you like to see? And he said, well, I'm here to see the porcelains. And this woman was a little aloof, probably a graduate art historian. And we looked at these things and came back. And she said something, again, it was a little aloof, a little condescending. And she said, and how did you find our porcelains? And David said, I think you might want to check the dates on the Sung dynasty. And she did a complete about face. But uh -huh. David knew these things. Oh. He had studied China yeah. and, mm -hmm. in a serious sort mm -hmm. of way. Mm -hmm. He was a... Uh, 
He, oh, he died tragically young, did he not? Yeah, uh, yeah. David had absolute contempt for his body, and uh, he, he he smoked a couple of packs of cigarettes a day. He he was not an alcoholic, but he he indulged himself, mm-hmm. and he did not exercise enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, he uh, he was a founding member of what we call the Kentucky Creek Walkers Guild, an organization that yet has to uh, be revived. But our goal was to walk every creek in Kentucky, and on one of those walks, we were at the Kentucky River near what's called Howard's Creek, and uh, we found this enormous sycamore egg in the driftwood. I mean, it was bigger than a beach ball and a lot heavier. And I can remember wheeling this thing up to my car, and we loaded it, and I took it back to where I was living with, with Liz in Athens, and we treated it with linseed oil and sanded it. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing. Well, a few years after that, David's marriage had gone on the rocks, and uh, he was—he said, "I'm going to California." And the last—that uh, was about the time. It was during the year I was teaching in Denmark, and um, and and I got a postcard. The last thing I heard from David was, "The egg and I have gone west." He said, may I borrow this thing? And he, and of course. So he took it with him? He took the egg with him, and uh, he died of a heart attack at oh, age goodness. 47 oh, wow. in, in uh, I think he was in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a good mutual friend there named Jack Shoemaker, who is actually Wendell Berry's publisher mm-hmm. from Counterpoint Books. And he and Jack had been mm-hmm. good friends for a long while. And David... David indulged himself. He read himself to death. He, 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 as I said, had contempt for the body. And, and Did you get your egg back? You know, his daughter asked me for it, oh. and I, I gave it to her. So yeah. I'm, I'm assuming that she has it, and uh, I'm happy she has it. So, Richard, um, I, I want to talk a little bit more, um, but I want to pause here and hear from our good friends at Spalding University, and I want you to to think about what you might say about something that maybe every son um, either dreads or celebrates um, uh, in an essay that that you've titled Things My Father Tried to Teach Me. Uh, We'll do that right after we hear from Spalding University. Spalding University's low residency MFA in creative writing offers one-on-one faculty attention in a supportive literary community. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, or writing for TV, screen, and stage. Stay at Louisville's historic Brown Hotel during week-long residencies, or travel on short-term study abroad. Flexible scheduling and affordable tuition put a top-tier MFA in reach. Learn more at spalling.edu MFA or email schoolofwriting at spalling.edu. I'm talking with Richard Taylor, uh, whose new book is Fathers Without the Apostrophe. Now, is there some reference, I think, in the acknowledgments about that? Or is there there some, uh, was there maybe the liner notes? Or did I I, uh, dream that, that that you you wouldn't have put, um, unless it's a possessive um, 
father or something. The title? Like. No, I, I don't think I. It's just a plural that. fathers. It's just plural fathers. Um, things my my father tried to teach me. So there were a few of those things. Oh yes, there were there were attempts at moral instruction, <laughs> and most of them related to growing up on a farm keeping tools, taking care of one's tools. He was a great collector of tools. Uh, being sort of ready, prepared. And uh, that anecdote uh, there is uh, about my, uh, my failure to meet that, uh, to, to meet standard. the less, that standard. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, his reaction to it, and, and I, you know, he, he was a taciturn kind of thoughtful person, but he did not, men did not show their, you spoke about emotions, men did not show their emotions. And, and, uh, but I know he loved my brother, my sister and me and his mother. He was, you know, unlike a lot of his colleagues, he did not over drink. He did not, uh, he did not run around, uh, he led a fairly simple life, but he led his best moments, I think, in the country. And it was sort of a, a journey backward and away from the kind of constrictive, conventional life in which he and most of us find ourselves. Mm -hmm. During the latter part of his, uh, his, his life, did you ever see him uh, change or mellow or soften? Oh, I, th I think we had, yeah, I think we had understandings. Uh, we did not have long conversations. One I'm thinking of that I didn't include in the book is when uh, my wife and I lived in a tenant house outside of Lexington, outside of near Athens, Kentucky. And I mentioned to him that we were going to put in a garden. And he loved that idea, and he brought us a brand new Aaron's rototiller. <laughs> I have a photograph of him there, and this this garden was at a barn on this rather large farm. And I was afraid, of course, that somebody would steal it, and of course they did. I chained it to a post in in the barn, and I never had the heart to tell him that that rototiller had been stolen but it pleased him he came up to visit more than once it so pleased him that his son was taking up some of his interest in gardening in having some relationship with the soil something he took pretty much for granted um, his his reading consisted of books about horticulture as much as anything else. And uh, he liked to grow things and was really good at it. Um, he liked to listen to uh, ball games on the radio. He liked to listen to ball games. That was, that was a big, uh, that, was, that was his recreation. Yeah. Um, and I think he was, he was a hard worker. He was not a churchgoer, although I've often thought his church was uh, outside the city limits. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was, uh, in many ways, very admirable. I think he had maybe the lack of emotion that we've referred to a couple of times came out of his own experience. His father died when he was about, I think, about 12, I think about 12 years old. Mm. 
and uh, I know very little about his father except that he was a tobacco farmer and a, a pretty big tobacco farmer, successful bar, tobacco mm -hmm. farmer. And his mother, uh, my grandmother, maternal grandmother, I can remember very little about her mm. except she was probably like m too many women during that period, sort of submissive and, uh, you know, uh, a domestic, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, she held things together domestically, raised children. Uh, the two I didn't mention are Cousin Lucy and Cousin Moni, mm -hmm. and they were... Uh, they were wonderful women, and they were both born in the 19th century. Uh, they had gone opposite paths. One was educated and was the principal of an elementary school in Louisville. The other, I think, had very little interest outside the kitchen and uh, living in the country. And the two of them lived on a farm outside of Louisville with their brother until their brother died. And... Uh, my father spent a lot of time with them, and uh, yeah, that's the only family he had. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, no, no, he had. A, well, his mother was still alive, but, but yeah, his father but had he died. had. But he was one of four. Okay, so he had some. Yeah, he had. Siblings. He had a. He had a brother, and uh, two sisters, mm -hmm. and they were in the area, and I grew up knowing them. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think my father was the youngest, and I think his mother, uh, his mother sent him to military school. She was afraid probably that he would not get the kind of regimen or discipline uh, that he needed, and that probably had some effect on him. Mm -hmm. uh, and that that part of his life is pretty much a, a void. He didn't he did not talk about himself. Uh, um, what more did you want to put? in fathers uh, that that either you or your editor left out or uh, is there a sequel is uh, i also read someone said uh, it might have been your friend i don't know if it was or not but i know your friend mike moran yeah. uh, uh, it's not an autobiography by any yeah. means it's not yeah. um, so maybe that's to come at some point i doubt it uh but but it was one of those things I wanted to, you know, it's like a bucket list. Was and it, well, even more, if you don't mind me saying, uh, was it more than just, uh, was it more cathartic than it was a bucket list? Yeah. Is it yeah, something, I, you, I th is I something it, that you had inside you for yeah. a long time that yeah. you wanted to get out and get on the page? And yeah, I wasn't stewing about it, but... As I said, I became a little more reflective and thought about well, what, what, you know, what shapes one's life, and each of us, I think, can attribute the direction we take to certain individuals, and it might be the maiden aunt, it might be a close friend in high school, it might be uh, an independent, self-sufficient woman living out in the country at an advanced age. Uh, and I wanted to sort of, in a way, it's doing justice to him. And uh, and uh, I think he would be, I can remember when I told him I wanted to major in English, he said to me, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> there wasn't much. Uh, and he, he, poetry, he could, he could recite a couple of poems he'd learned in high school, but he had no interest in literature.
Well, I'm sure that, as we know today, he didn't realize that the uh, the liberal arts, the, the humanities, uh, English, might have helped him in his legal career. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. He was a good student. My mm -hmm. mother told me uh, he was valedictorian of his class. He was pretty studious. When he graduated from law school, he went back to law school for a year at Cornell, of all places. And my son, who was very interested in these matters, retrieved his academic record from 19, uh, would have been 30 or 31. And uh, gentleman sees mostly. Oh. He was, uh, well, he was amused by that, but he mm -hmm. had his actual, he sent me a copy of mm -hmm. his actual grade report. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I don't know, I have good feelings about him. And uh, I just wish there had been maybe more communication. And uh, I think he knew I appreciated him, and, and I certainly did. So, in some way, uh, Richard, does it, even uh, after all of these years in raising your family and having your children, does it um, help you be more sensitive or yes. open or honest or uh, not as, uh, if you were ever, I can't imagine you being withdrawn, but, but uh, uh, as you know, our children have a way of... Um, of having an image of of one uh, that uh, isn't always what what you have of yourself. Yeah, I would answer yes, yes, and yes. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I have a, I, I really enjoy the relationship I have with my children, and it's much more open. I talk usually to both of them every day. I think they call me to see if I'm still alive, but. Uh, no, I'm very close to my children and very open and really appreciative of grandchildren, as I know yeah. many yeah. of your listeners are. Yeah. Grandchildren are just great. Yeah. Well, it's a, um, a real... I know a lot of people will read it and see themselves in it, and that makes it uh, readable. And uh, once again, you've... Um, You've struck it, uh, you, you, you've hit pay dirt. Thank it's you. It's a good Bill. read. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate that. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.